Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm talking about beyond individual coaching, what organizations should be doing for mums with organizational specialist, Mary Beth Ferrante. I wanted to interview Mary Beth because her work embodies addressing all levels of change that can support equity at home and work and therefore reduce burnout. Mary Beth is an organizational specialist who provides individual coaching for employees, particularly mums, but who quickly learned that individual change is not enough. We also need to address organizational and social barriers. In particular, we need to have cultural change around the ideal worker as available 24-7 to being someone who is resourceful and whole and creative and engages in many aspects of their life. You can find Mary Beth's key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com. Just before we head to our conversation, for any regular listeners, I'll be taking a break over the next two weeks to catch up on my editing for the last six wonderful guests of season two. It's been a busy few weeks with my TEDx talk, Society of Behavioral Medicine keynote, and getting all the kids' summer camps lined up. I also did two bonus episodes over the last few weeks with Reshma Saljani on her book, Pay Up, and Deepa Prasamon on her book, The First, The Few, The Only. And I have a whole host of exciting interviews already recorded for season three. This podcast is not my full-time paid work. So balancing it is a constant challenge. And as my husband and coach like to remind me, I'm in charge of what I put out. My podcast does not control me. So please listen back to any episodes you might've missed. And we'll be back on May 18th with the hilarious Selena Barker, fellow Brit and author of Burnt Out. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the multi-talented Mary Beth Ferrante. Hi, I'm Mary Beth Ferrante. I am a mom of two young girls who are almost four and six years old. I am part of a dual career couple, meaning that both my husband and I work full time. And I am the managing partner and founder of Work360. And we are a consulting and coaching organization that really focuses on creating cultures that care. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for your time today and fitting us in. Tell us a little bit about your week with your daughter home due to a COVID quarantine. Isn't that just the way of the world right now? So luckily it was nothing too scary, but she had an exposure in her cohort at school. And so on Sunday morning, we got the call that we were going to be home for a few days while we scrambled to get her tested and make sure that we also had childcare. So luckily we have an incredible former nanny of ours who has a fairly flexible morning schedule now. And so I was able to call her very quickly and rely on her to come and help us out. But then we were juggling different hours and Zoom preschool, which is 
hilarious, um, but <laughs> interesting and just having to manage through our schedules. And I think one of the really important things that we have shifted to in our relationship when things like this happens is that it's a conversation between me and my husband of how we're going to juggle this and what are the next steps we're going to take as opposed to it just being relying on me to always make the adjustments in my schedule. And that is something that was not always the case. And so we've really gotten to that place in the last few years. And I think that's been a really important transition for me personally. Yeah, I love that. And I think as a default, we just take over and go for it and start managing and organizing. And it's really important we stop and then say, okay, now let's have this conversation. Exactly. And what's going on with both of our work schedules this week and what flexibility do we both have and recognizing like what important meetings or or things that we have to get accomplished and how that relates to how we can manage the disruption. And I know so many people are going through this. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Yes. I was just going to add, it's our second one already in two months. So we've had two COVID exposures and my older daughter was home for an entire week. So it's definitely the way of the world. But I think it's also important to recognize that it's not just COVID, right? It's they get sick. It's a holiday. It's all of those things that disrupt your normal day-to-day schedule. Exactly. Exactly. So please describe your journey to where you are now in your career. Tell us um, about that journey. Sure. Yeah. So I really grew up in the financial industry and was in you know, a corporate role for over a decade. And after having my first child, I really just realized how challenging it was um, to be in my role and to really do what I wanted to do both personally and professionally. And so I think a few things happened. Like number one was I was in a corporate strategy role and I was really doing well. I actually got promoted while I was on maternity leave to an SVP role, which was incredible. But when I came back, um, I really realized that I didn't like the work and I, I already knew that, but I think you have this identity crisis when you become a new mom, you're kind of adjusting to who you are as a mother and then who you are as a working mother too. And I think you go through these two two big steps. And so when I came back to work, I really realized that there was just no place for who I wanted to be personally and professionally. And I think part of that was because I worked on a team that was all men and all ex-McKinsey men, which I just think is interesting because it just gives you a line of Insight into their work ethic and craziness. And there was just really no space for me to be a mom on that team and to really continue to rise. And I came back to work actually late in the week. I think it was a Thursday. And by that weekend, had a full slate of projects. By the next weekend, was already working through the weekend. And there was no respect for the fact that my whole life had changed and that my responsibilities had changed. And there was an expectation that I was going to be exactly who I was before I walked out the door for maternity leave. And I think that really hit me very hard that there was just no ramp up. There was no appreciation and there was no kind of recognition about these huge changes that are going on in our personal lives. And even our um, executive that ran our team had his second child and didn't tell us. And he was working from home for about a week or something. And it was just this crazy story where it was like, did you know that the reason he's working from home, and by the way, not even taking paternity leave, which was available to him, but working from home because his wife just gave birth. And it was like, I can't believe that this isn't even something that he's talking about. And so that was 
the culture of our team, which really shook me as, oh, this is not going to be a place where I'm going to be able to continue to grow. And that really is what kind of launched all of this work and realization around the maternal wall and the bias that hits mothers. And there was a few other instances where I had been advocating for equal pay on my team. Like I mentioned, I had been promoted to an SVP role. I was the first person in my peer group to be promoted to that role, yet I was making about 30 grand less than my male peers who were not even at that SVP level yet. And so I was advocating for that equity and pay before I went on leave and had been really placated to and and told that they were going to make it up to me and my bonus and they were going to do all these things. And when push came to shove, it just, it didn't happen. And that was really the kind of knife in the coffin for me where I waited until that bonus did hit my, my bank account and I quit the next day and really just realized that was not something I was willing to continue to fight for and that I needed to find a different path to fight for my own career and my own growth. And so with that, I actually launched my first company, which was Live Work Lead. And I think it was really interesting because I remember sharing with my boss when I quit that I was going to start this business and I was going to really needed more flexibility in my work. And all he heard was, I'm going home to be a mom. And I was like, no, that's not at all what I'm going to do. But thank you for understanding that. And I uh, really recognized that I was also in a place where I had the privilege to do that. I had been the breadwinner in my relationship with my husband for quite some time. And and he was really willing to say, okay, you can be in a more risky position. And I have, you know, more stability in my role now in, in my own career growth where we can take this risk. So I think that's an important factor that a lot of people don't have that privilege and that ability to do. And so I did leave my corporate role and launched Work360. And that was primarily focused on supporting individual new parents and specifically new moms in a coaching capacity and working with individuals to help support them through the transition of planning for leave, returning to work, and really with that identity of what is it to be a working mother. And what I quickly realized is that I was often coaching women to move into a new role because they felt the only solution, right, was to restart. And when we actually look at the numbers, this was, I think, a report that came out maybe about a year or two ago, actually. But Motherly had a a report that about 50% of millennial mothers change their job status after the birth of their their first child. And that means they either have moved to part-time or they might have, you know, actually left the workforce. But the majority of that 50% is that they're just finding a new position because they don't want to be held um, to that same standard of who they were before, or they feel like there's, you know, this disconnect between who they were before maternity leave and before becoming a working mother. And they don't feel that support uh, from their organization. And so the only option is to leave and start fresh. I think what I realized in that very quickly is, oh, we need to start to shift the conversation to the manager. We need to really focus on how are these leaders supporting their their employees as they're you know going through these major life transitions and returning from parental leave, and we started to shift into that work, and that quickly really turned into more of okay, we also need to be at the organization level, right? It's not just the managers; it's really who's setting the policy, who's setting the framework, who's setting the culture within the organization. And so that's when we shifted into Work360, and that was the summer of 
2019, which is just funny with everything that goes on. And in the before times, we were really building our pipeline and had a, a good set of organizations that were ready and willing to work with us. And we were launching kind of our, our coaching platform and support for both the employee and the managers in the spring of 2020. And then of course, COVID hit and everything just changed overnight. And we really lost a lot of that pipeline just because no one knew what was going on and nobody had any clue how we were going to continue to move forward or how long it was going to last. And that really was a blessing in disguise, of course. I think there was a silver lining to it in the fact that we really pivoted not away from moms or not away from caregivers, but to really take a broader look at care and to recognize that we all are impacted by care. At any given point, all of us are either a caregiver or we're receiving care or we're going to receive care in the future or we are going to give care in the future. And I think that recognition is what has put us in the position we are today, which is really focusing on addressing burnout and addressing flexibility and creating cultures that allow for their employees to have the space to care, whether that's for themselves for their families or for their communities. And so that's where we're at right now. And I'm sure we'll continue to evolve as small businesses do, but we really are working with organizations on how to kind of move into the next phase of work into this kind of hybrid model, what flexibility really looks like, how do we go beyond just where we work, but when we work, where we work, how we work, and how we really think about the manager's role too in managing people's um, time, but also ensuring that they're taking care of themselves. And I really see this as a transition from recognizing the ideal worker as someone who is only or who is only dedicated to their job, available 24-7, ready to travel at the drop of a hat, to realizing that the people that are going to be the most successful and the most creative and the most innovative are the people who are able to care for themselves, who are able to take breaks, who are part of an organization that recognizes that they need space to live a whole life. And so we really are working to make that transition for organizations and more broadly, just through the advocacy work that we do as well. Great. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for that amazing introduction and to see how you've evolved. And, and I am, I'm so impressed at your ability to see all these different levels where we need to change. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that because it takes more. That means we have to have comprehensive solutions. That means you have to understand the coaching level that you did at Live Work Lead, that you have to understand the workplace level at 360. And then now stepping into this advocacy role, it's a different skill and a whole different environment. And I think often people stay in their lanes and stay with what they're doing because it's what they gain their skills in. So I really admire you that you're going beyond that and realizing that it is the whole solution that we need. And my sort of public health background is exactly how we approach things just like that, because these complex problems need complex solutions. So 
That's just so great that you're embracing that. Thank you for that. And what we'll do is we'll go back in and, and unpack different pieces of that. And I can totally resonate with what you were saying about when you're leaving work, people saying, oh, you're going home to be a mom. And I remember one of my um, mentors and, and leaders in my department saying that. And I was thinking, I never said that. That is not where I'm going. And it was actually the last thing I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom. My career had been everything to me. And so that transition and that sort of pressure in some ways was so uncomfortable because again, I felt that guilt of, oh, should I be wanting to be this stay-at-home mom? Because others think that's what I am doing. So definitely that transition was hard. Absolutely. And I think that should hits me so much to my core. And it's a mantra that I've adopted uh, over the last two years where I constantly tell myself, don't shut on yourself. So that every time I feel that word in my brain or in my thought process of I should be doing something else, it triggers this thought of why should I? Who says that? Where is that coming from? And it gives me that space to say, is it actually something I want or is it something that I feel pressure or guilt around because that's how society has set it up. The patriarchy has set it up or simply like my family or my upbringing or what maybe even my partner thinks I should be doing. So it can be really personal. Oftentimes I just blame the patriarchy and move on. (laughs) That's so great. And that's totally your coaching mentality there, knowing how to manage your thoughts and um, move on. Yeah, that's so key. So you mentioned in your description, the maternal wall, and I didn't know about the maternal wall before I started reading Joan Williams's work. Can you describe that a little more so that women can recognize it? Because I think this is the thing. We're in this space and we don't really know what we're dealing with. That's how I felt. And I think a lot of women do, because again, part of it is this doesn't exist anymore. Society's not like this. And so then you're thinking, what am I doing wrong? It's me. But yet there is this real maternal wall that we we hit as mums, but also that I think affects other women who maybe don't want to have kids, but the assumption is that they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I remember actually sitting um, in my senior year in a women's and leadership class. I graduated from a business school and we were talking about the fact that things had evolved so much. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm absolutely going to be in the C-suite someday. And that's what I want to do. And that's that ambition and drive that I'm looking for. And we're in a world now where that's possible. And so I think because of that, I think particularly for millennials and, and even younger Gen Xers uh, and definitely Gen Z, uh, we have the ability to do whatever we want kind of makes the maternal wall feel like it comes out of nowhere, or at least that's how it felt for me. I definitely had faced other bias just being a woman, but I am a white woman. So that means that my path was much easier in corporate America. And there were subtleties for sure throughout that, but nothing that I felt was so egregious until really becoming a mother and recognizing all of the bias that comes up. And it is subtle and it can be also extremely apparent too, right? It's everything from, I had clients who would tell me that they were pregnant and their jobs were essentially taken away from them while they were out on leave. They came back to work and they basically were told that they no longer had a team and within a couple of months were let go because obviously there was no longer a role for them. So you have those stories that are so apparent, but then you also have the things that happen more subtly 
which is managers who think that they're doing something nice for you by not giving you that big assignment or not allowing you to move up in a promotion because you recently had a child. It's also that they do, you know, what, what Joan C. Williams talks about, which is the prove it again thing, which is what happened to me, which is you dump all of the work on this person and basically say, prove your loyalty to work into this company and show that you can work 70, 80 hours a week and not be that mom that is a stay at home or takes a step back at work. And so there's almost this idea that you have to prove yourself. And so I think it shows up in a variety of ways, which I think is what can be so challenging about the maternal wall. And I would also say that it is really expanded to even caregiver bias just in general, because it does happen, especially in traditionally male dominated industries where men who do take their leave or who do take a more active role in their child's life, especially in their early years, do also see some of those same frustrations and same limitations in their growth. You know, I think later as children get older, men are often more praised for the active role that they take, if they're coaching the little league team or whatnot. And there's almost this, there is a fatherhood bonus, especially in pay that happens. But I think almost this appreciation that men are more dedicated to work because they have a family, whereas women are just less dedicated. And I think that's essentially summarizes it, right? The maternal wall is this idea that women are less dedicated to their careers because of motherhood. And it absolutely impacts women who choose not to become parents or who struggle to become parents because the assumption is that they will and that they will take a step back and they are not going to remain ambitious or dedicated or wanting to grow in their career. Exactly. Thank you. You described that so well. So I hope that mums can recognize a little bit themselves in that. And I know sometimes in corporate positions, there's this assumption that you don't want to travel, but actually I loved going to my conferences and having a bath. Right. Having a silent room. It was amazing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of assumptions in there. And I almost wanted to cry a little bit when you described yourself in college there, because I thought, oh, my God, yes, we had so much excitement about being able to do it all. We could see ourselves in these positions. And I agree, this wall does hit you in the face. I think for me, I assumed that part of this transition was when I came to the U.S. starting to notice gender things that I hadn't seen in Europe when I'd worked in different companies or different countries in Europe. But actually, maybe you saying that makes me think maybe that was more what I was hitting was that maternal wall that I came to within a few years of coming to the U.S. And I assumed it was maybe partly just some differences in culture, but actually it was possibly more to do with that showing up more often because I remember when I was on maternity leave not being included in publications and publications is like our whole (laughs) performance metric in academia and and it was so hard and I remember just not knowing what to do about it like how to ask about it if I'd known that this was some sort of maternal bias I think I would have just said that rather than feeling like I wasn't there maybe I shouldn't be included did I do enough to be included all those questions instead of hey this is bias this is not allowed to happen and shouldn't happen Absolutely. And I think that's the important piece of it is having some language and being able to ask. And and it's not necessarily that they're always aware or conscious. We know a lot around unconscious bias, but I think being able to say, hey, I feel like you're making decisions based on what you assume I want. 
but I want to actually tell you what I would like. And I think that's the biggest piece when I'm working directly with individuals. And we still do a lot of that work today, sponsored by their companies, but we're still working with individuals is about being able to have a voice and have the permission to use that and advocate for yourself. And that it's okay if you do want to take a step back and to share that and to carve out that path for yourself. And it's also okay if you don't and that you want to actually maybe hit the gas pedal at work even more. And and it's really about being able to advocate and not have the assumptions and the decisions made for it. Exactly. So that's a great segue into telling us a bit more. Please tell us how Work360 helps women in the workplace and what are the keys to your successful approach? Yeah. So we basically two two main things. So from a coaching perspective, we work with organizations to sponsor coaching primarily for new parents. So that does tend to be more moms, but we do also coach dads as well. And we're working with those individuals as they're planning for leave, returning to leave and throughout their journey as a parent, because as we all know, um, returning to the workplace is just the beginning. You have all of these disruptions that continue and your children just tend to need you at various times throughout their lives. And so there's always these adjustments and and things that have to be worked through. And so we really offer that third-party experience and coaching support to those individuals sponsored by their organization. So that's one way. And we really work with people to meet them where they're at and to really help them navigate through whatever it is, the challenge that they're having. And to recognize that even though we are supporting them in the workplace, that oftentimes it has a lot to do with looking at the home front as well. And as a working parent, you have to be thinking about your priorities and your goals holistically as a family and what works for you today might be really different than what works for you in six months or a year or five years. And so being able to to navigate through that together. And then the other piece that we do is we really work with the organization level. So oftentimes the chief people officer or CHRO or kind of head of people strategy, and we're really working with them on taking a new approach to how they look at care within the workplace. And that can show up in a lot of different ways. We always start with listening. We always start with going in and assessing where the company is, what are their employee engagement scores, what have they done doing that research and gathering, then really focusing on talking to employees. So we run oftentimes focus groups across their organization at various levels, depending on the the questions that we're trying to answer. And then we really look at how can we co-create recommendations so that we're engaging with employees in what it is that they want. And then being able to work with the leadership teams on what those shifts and changes are going to be. And that can be at the policy level of implementing new parental leave policies, for example, or implementing new flexibility policies, which is a lot of what the work we're doing today, especially as we're kind of in this, you know, muddy period of what's next in the workplace, especially as offices are reopening across various parts of the U.S. and and even more globally. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And, And then a recognition that we need to really 
do a lot of work with aligning leadership. So that's the kind of the next phase for us is that we often are doing a lot of facilitation with the leadership teams, the executive teams, and then even with the managers, direct managers on, you know, how do you actually implement this? How do you make sure that you're believing in it too? Because if there isn't leadership alignment, there's no change. We can say, hey, parental leave is a great example of this. There are plenty of companies, including my former company, that offer equal leave, right? Equal leave for any caregiver, regardless of how they start their family, which is amazing. It's an incredible policy. I had a colleague call me, this is a couple of years ago now. And so I just asked, what should I take? And the response from HR was, take what you need. And he's like, what does that mean, take what you need? And I was like, I have no idea, <laughs> right? Because take what you need implies that you don't need the full leave. That as a caregiver who didn't give birth, that yes, you have it, but you should just assess what's necessary for you. And there isn't an assumption that you're going to take all of it. And so we see this particularly with a lot of the organizations, particularly in fin finance and tech, where they have expanded the policies but the cultures have not shifted enough where men actually feel comfortable taking their leave. And so really looking at how do you shift the culture? How do you, you know, start to storytell within those organizations about the positive things about men who are taking their leave? How do you shift um, managers into recognizing that the expectation should be that you do take all of it? And that if someone decides that they're not going to take all of it, that's a conversation you need to have with them about why do they feel like they can't? What are they concerned about within their career growth or within their work that they're doing that they feel like they don't have this ability to take their leave? And that's really where we're working with organizations at the policy level, but then on this next phase of how do we actually shift mindsets? How do we actually shift behaviors? And that has a lot to do with the communications that are being sent out by the organization, the storytelling that is happening, and then actually the behavior and model changes at the leadership level and at the manager level. And one of the things I understand both from behavior change science and also from other countries who have paternal leave is when you do this, and I actually was posting about it today on LinkedIn because a study had come out around it, which is that if it's basically an opt-out, so the default is everyone takes leave and then you have to go to the extra effort of opting out of it. So you would the default would be to take your whole time and then you would have to make the extra effort to strangely ask for less time. And that would be seen as the strange thing to do rather than the, what everybody does. And my understanding from behavior change science, we know that makes it easier because you would have to go to the extra effort to not do it. So anytime that a habit is the easiest thing to do, that's when it succeeds. And, and then also from countries where paternity leave is the, the default, it seems that definitely that gender gap is closing. Absolutely. Yeah, and where if the non-birthing partner or the male partner does not take their leave, it's just lost for the whole family. And I think that uh, shift has really helped narrow the gap in Scandinavian countries where I think more of the men feel, one, that they have to, that it's a sense of duty to their family because otherwise they're losing that for their partner and for their family as well. Mm, exactly, exactly. It's seen as a benefit, which is such a different mindset, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think this is where in the U.S., where we really need to have the government step in and set the standard and set the baseline. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't still have organizations and companies taking a stand and providing 
more or better leave or better policies or more flexibility within their workplaces or being a best in class workplace for caregivers and just generally for people these days. But I think we need to recognize that, especially here, we have left it up to the market for over a hundred years and 80% of American workers still have no access to any sort of paid leave. And yet over 75% of Americans think that we should. So obviously there's a disconnect with allowing just corporations to be the ones to step in, especially because so many people are employed by small businesses that simply don't have the, the funds to really invest in paid leave programs. And so we need to have the government come in and really set that groundwork. And I think it's really frustrating particularly this week, because we felt like we were so close to actually having an opportunity where paid leave was going to be included in the, the Build Back Better bill. And when that was taken out in this last iteration, I think there is a real frustration, anger that is popping up because it really feels like we're saying, no, we don't believe in investing in families. And we don't recognize that people actually need this time to heal, to be there for the most important moments in their families, and to not feel like they have to make the impossible decision of whether or not they are there to hold the hand of their dying parent or be there for the birth of their child or be able to pay their bills and put food on the table. And so you know, I think it's a really hard, it's been a really hard week to be a parent and particularly a mother, I think, in the U.S. How do you, as an advocate, think about what you have to do going forward because advocacy I think is really hard so again that's why I admire so much that you're in that space what's next then in that in right although it might be too soon to say but it's just we always have to shift and again I I try and think about all these things that I understand are at these different levels but I always come back to like behavior change 101 which is what can we do to change these things? What role models can we have? Where's our tracking and accountability? Um, Where's our skill development in this area? How can we take a behavioral approach to this? Absolutely. I think I'm a little bit still in the grieving period this week of what are we doing? I ate some chocolate and had a cocktail last night and, and that helped me feel a little bit better. I think it is realizing that the big systemic changes are always going to be the most challenging. And while this is absolutely a blow, it is not the end and we will all continue to fight. And I think putting our efforts into opportunities where we have more voices heard, and that has to be at every level. And I think this is where the work that we are doing is not, it's hard because sometimes I think we do look at all too many levels and it can be challenging because we know that there needs to be a shift at every level. So you feel like it's a bit watered down or something? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, exactly. But I think one of the things that is so critical to this is that equity in the workplace really does begin with equity in the home. And I think that the more that women and mothers can really change how they're homes operate and stop being martyrs to the idea that we have to be these superhero moms that do it all and actually say, no, we're not going to do it all. 
And instead, we are going to expect that our partners take an active role in caregiving. It's a slower impact. It's almost like campaigning for votes, right? It's one voter at a time. It's one family at a time. But I think this is why we got involved with Fair Play and Eve Brodsky and the team over at Hell of Sunshine, because what Fair Play does is it actually brings a tangible solution to all of these challenges and says, here's a framework, here's an organizational system that you can bring into your home. Here's a way that you can talk about it with your partner that's not emotional, that's not gendered, that really recognizes that all people in your home have an opportunity to play a role. And it's not meant to be hey, let's all get to 50-50 of exactly splitting all of the chores and the caregiving and the unplayed labor in the home. But it's about having the tools and the framework and the dialogue to say, what is fair in our house? What are our goals? What do we want? And how do we think about this as a family? And I think that those shifts within individual families will start to change culture more dramatically and give particularly women more space to be able to take these active roles in advocacy and in politics. And at the same time, we also have these amazing, incredible leaders like Senator Gillibrand and the team over at Paid Leave US Plus and Melinda French Gates and all of these incredible people who are advocating and doing work to make the systemic changes happen as well. And we need to be doing both of these things at the same time. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about becoming a fair play facilitator. And as I think about that 50-50, not only can it give mums room to do things, but I think it really puts a different reality on the dads. The dads I know that are doing 50-50 are almost at the same state of burnout as the mums, right? Because basically trying to manage a family in this day and age plus do your job, a full-time job, that's 150%, right? So we are exhausted. So unless we have other systems in place to support us, the, the men can't do that either. They can't make that choice. So I think that becomes more apparent as well to them that society will have to change because they've tried it the same as their wife's been tra- doing it and they can't do it either. So it's okay, what has to change? I hope that potentially is part of the pathway. But yeah, tell us more about becoming a fair play facilitator. Yeah. And so I think that's exactly it. As I was telling that story about being in college, right? I think that women have been told for the last few decades that we can do it all, we can be it all. I think that men have not been given the same opportunity to be caregivers, to realize that is actually part of their humanity and part of the role that they can play and they can be so powerful in. And so I think by working with Fair Play and that team and really working with individuals and how we can bring this into a more normal part of our society as this is the expectation that all of us are caregivers at some point in our lives, that all of us play a role in this, that all of us have to realize the unpaid labor that is going on in our homes and in our society. And I do think to your point of like, We need men to experience it. And there's a lot of allyship programs out there, right? Men as allies is a huge thing in in corporate America, particularly. And, And I don't dismiss it, but I think that's not always enough. We need men to actually experience it so that they can feel it. There was a great headline this morning that basically pointed to the fact that Senator Manchin is a 74 year old white man who has had a caregiver or a spouse who has been that caregiver in his family his whole life. 
And he single-handedly made a decision for millions of women and families that they don't need the time and the paid time to care for their families. And it's because he has never experienced it and he doesn't understand and it becomes about money to him. And look, I'm not saying that how we pay for it isn't part of a huge broader conversation that I do not fully understand, nor I don't think I ever will. But I think that experience of recognizing why these supports need to be in place, why we need systemic change is so important. And the other piece that's so critical to fair play is also educating moms and women that it's not their fault, right? That we are actually supposed to live like this. We have become such an individualist society that we no longer rely on community. We no longer expect support from our government or from our communities. And it is impossible to be that superhero who literally does it all because you will burn out and you will have, you know, health problems because of that, mental health problems because of that, just all of these things that that come out of that. And so I think the more that we can have men be at the table and doing it with us, there will be a bigger opportunity for change because they will actually understand it. And and I'm imagining the same way that I felt emotional imagining you as the girl in college thinking about getting into the C-suite. It would be so great if the boys in college as they're leaving, they're like thinking about, yeah, I'm getting into the C-suite and I'm so excited to know how to manage that along with being a dad when I get that opportunity. It would be such a different like vision and, and shift. Yes, like there's, why was there a women in leadership class, but not a men in leadership class? It's just this idea that it's, we need to make sure that we are allowing them to be those caregivers and to be those dads and not to miss out on also the joy. If they're dedicating 80 hours a week to their work, they're not having the opportunity to be with their families. And I don't think that's something that anyone, you know, really wants. And I'm sure there's a handful that do, but for the majority of people, they want to be there. They want to experience that with their families. There needs to be a, a men in supportive leadership class. Yes, exactly. I like that. Maybe that's going to be my next play to start to teach a class on men as supportive leaders. We've touched on so much. Is there any more detail you want to give about the, the fair play principles? Or do you want to talk a little bit more about the network of entrepreneurs that you're working with? Or do you want to talk a bit more about how people can hire 360, like anything else just at this stage that you would like to focus on? Because there's a lot on the table here. It's really um, what you're feeling is most important for you to talk about. Yeah. So I would just say that I think the most important thing at the end of the day is to really take an active role. And if you are looking for changes Look at the way that you can be that change in even the tiniest little bit. And there's this idea of a kaleidoscope, right? If you just shift it a little bit, the ripple effect, the whole picture changes. And so for that, I would say if you are in a position where you have the influence to have changes brought into your organization you know, that is where Work360 can absolutely step in and can support your organization through the change management, through the strategic change that needs to occur so that there can be more space in your organizations for people to be caregivers and to support caregivers in the workplace. And we would absolutely want to partner with organizations on that. 
if you as an individual are saying, how can I just make this shift in my family? That is where I think fair play can be so critical and so supportive is actually giving you a tool and a way to engage with your family, engage with your partner and have us have an actual game or a system to really figure out how you split up responsibilities in a way that not only takes the execution of the chore off your plate, but takes the mental load off your plate as well, which is what really, I think, keeps so many of us um, from reaching our full potential outside of of the home. And so I would say, depending on, on where you're at, recognize that you can make that shift in your home or in your organization. Or if you're ready to get involved on the advocacy level, hit me up on Instagram, or we will get you involved with those organizations that are doing incredible work. Yeah, I just love that you have this comprehensive approach. It's fantastic. And maybe one point that we haven't touched on, you have mentioned briefly, is where does burnout fit in to to all of this? I I think for me, I forget, to me, it it is such a central part of it. But I, I think people don't necessarily always connect the dots to realizing that this equality and equity is a huge part about burnout. Yeah, and it's such a good call out. And I think if you care about burnout, you have to care about equity in the home. And you have to care about equity at work because we are looking at all of these workers across the US, but really across the world, where we have said that the only way to be successful is to be so dedicated to your work that you're available 24-7. And that of course, is going to lead to burnout because it doesn't allow you to be a whole person. And so I think we have to realize as leaders that if we want to address burnout, we have to really give people the space to take a break. And that's not take a vacation. That's not even take a sabbatical. That's take a break every day to be able to put your work down, to be able to walk away, to do something joyful, whether that is to take care of yourself or to take care of your family, but then to also have space to just be you. And in that, I think we have this identity that we are, look at any conversation you have with someone that you meet here in the US, the first question is always, what do you do? we tie our identities so directly to our professional lives. And then you become a parent. And how many times are you addressed as, hey, mom, right? Mom, even out in the world, right? You're the mom of this child. You don't even have a name. You go to the doctor's office. They tell, they always say mom, which is totally fine, but it just drives me a little bit insane. It's like, I am a human. I think we, we lose ourselves in these roles as professionals and as parents and even as partners with our spouses or, or our partners. And so I think it's being able to make sure that we are giving people the space to just be them that we are all individuals and we all have our own aspirations and goals or just need to read a book. That's okay too. And so I think just having that space is such an important piece of all of this to tackling burnout and really giving people the expectation that they aren't supposed to be dedicated to work 24 seven. And instead the ideal worker is someone who is resourceful and whole and creative and engages in many aspects of their life. Thank you so much for listening today. And just a reminder, if you're listening to this in April 2022, I'll be taking a break in the next two weeks to catch up on editing. And we will be back May 18th with Selena Barker. 
British author of Burnt Out. If you miss my dulcet tones, in the meantime, you can listen to my bonus episodes with Reshma Saljani on her book, Pay Up, and Deepa Persimon on her book, The First, The Few, The Only. Or you can hear some more of my story as a guest on the Fried Podcast with Kate Donovan, on Decoding Burnout with Sharon Grossman, or Public Health Epidemiology Conversations podcast with Dr. Charlotte Huntley. As you may have heard in the introduction, I was recently a keynote at the Society for Behavioral Medicine's annual meeting. If your organization needs to kickstart its burnout efforts with an inspiring keynote, I can talk about my story, the science behind burnout, and the science and practice of preventing burnout. From my own experience, my podcast guests, and my public health behavior change multi-level approach. I can provide a clear roadmap for your organization's burnout efforts, as well as personal recommendations to start managing your burnout today. Importantly, my approach to burnout can align with your organization's DEI efforts. Just contact me through my website at drjacquelinecurr.com. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a 